0: It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of June 29th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. But not the spam. Lately, I've noticed a disturbing trend in spam, or perhaps that should really be a more disturbing trend. Some of the spams that I receive look like they come from legitimate companies. Most of them say I'm receiving the message because I registered with them or with a partner, but that's a lie that's revealed immediately when I take a look at the address the message was sent to, and I quickly determine it's an address I would never use to register with any site. But when you receive what looks like a spam from Sears, you have to wonder, is Sears really spamming me or something else going on? Well, spam that caught my attention recently was trying to sell siding from Sears. At the top of the message, it said, You're receiving this message because you signed up for special offers from Intella. Fine, except I never heard of Intella. I have no idea who they are, where they are, what they want. Down at the bottom of the message... You have been sent this advertisement through opting in to one or more of our offers or becoming one of our customers. We are committed to delivering highly rewarding offers, updates, and promotions. If you no longer wish to receive these emails, please go here, and of course go here was a link, to remove yourself from our subscriber list. We are compliant with the CAN-SPAM Act of 2003. So, did it come from Sears? I really wasn't sure. So I went to the Sears website filled out a contact form for the company's public relations department. I did that back on March 26th. On June 19th, I had still heard nothing, so I made a second request. A few days before my deadline for finishing this report, Sears responded. A Christian Brathwaite wrote, Bill, based on our information, you opted in to receive email offers via a third-party vendor we work with. Our information shows you signed up at elitesurveygroup.com on February 29th. If you would like to opt out from receiving additional communications from any Sears holding retail formats, please let us know. Oddly, I didn't know that formats sent messages, but I guess that's possible. As I told Christian, I've never heard of Elite Survey Group, and what I saw on their website doesn't give me much confidence. The site appears to be one of those kinds of sites I warn people about It makes me sad to see a company with a reputation of Sears use this kind of marketing. The Elite Survey Group website is one of those sites that promises to give you something grand for nothing. All you have to do is take a survey and participate in a few little offers. Well, by the time you work your way through those, you'll have spent probably more money than whatever the little grand trinket they're going to give you is worth. I've never heard of that particular vendor, I've never filled out one of their surveys, and the email message was sent to an address that I would never use for something like this. I asked Christian to provide any additional information he could, and if he would provide additional information, I told him that I'd be happy to review it. Well, I've heard nothing, of course. Actually, I was rather kinder than I should have been. The only email address Christian had for me was my techbiter.com address. The spam I had complained about was one sent to one of my unlisted addresses. Christian didn't know about that address. I hadn't mentioned that address in any of my messages to Sears. So Brathwaite assumed that the spam had come to the address that he had, and he simply attempted to mollify me with a canned response that coincidentally uses a date far enough in the past that I might be fooled into thinking that he was telling the truth, except for the fact that he was responding to the wrong address. And so that raises a question. Was Christian Brathwaite... Lying to me when he said that I had signed up on February 29th? Some might say that he was. And I would be one of them. My advice continues to be, don't deal with spammers. And unfortunately, that now seems to include Sears. Another spam I received recently appeared to have come from eHarmony, the online matchmaking service, but maybe it didn't. The sender was Micmark.com. It's an organization listed as the 38th most prolific spammer on the date that I received the message. So does eHarmony work with micmark.com or is this just one of the run-of-the-mill click fraud operations? Don't know. micmark is registered to topedgeinteractive.com, which claims to be in Santa Barbara. MicMac redirects to topedgeinteractive's website, which has very little information about the company. On the same day I sent my first message to Sears, March 26th, I also visited eHarmony's website and filled out a request form. The message said, Hello, I'm a journalist who's writing a story about spam. You seem to have spammed me, and I would like to know why. The message came from Dating at mcmark.com, and I see that McMark is a prolific spammer. The story I'm writing is slotted for late June. I look forward to your prompt reply. By June 19th, I had received no reply. So I attempted to reach eHarmony's public relations department by phone. Never succeeded. So, as with Sears, I can only conclude that spam is condoned by eHarmony as a marketing tool. Of course, if anyone at eHarmony would actually like to contact me and indicate otherwise, I'll be more than happy to provide that follow-up information. But I expect silence. And then there was the spam from MyDirectWeb. Be smart, get direct. Talking about cord blood, having a baby, consider umbilical cord blood banking. The sender's address on that particular message was cordblood at moneymuddle.com. Money muddle? Yeah. According to the registrar, the domain belongs to topvirtualinteractive.com, which claims to be located at an address that's occupied by a large shopping center in Carlsbad, California. I don't know if there's any validity to claims made for storing umbilical cord blood, but I do know that those who store it often charge $100 or more per year just to store a few milliliters of blood. Pretty good business model, if you ask me. There's an article on Wikipedia about the practice, and at best, it is inconclusive, medically. Are you willing to trust a spammer with something that is potentially this important? No, neither am I. And here's one from Tech Support. Solve computer problems quickly with tech support. And among the links on that message was one to Hewlett Packard. Now, there's no question that tech support is a good thing. But this message came to me from an address that raises a lot of questions. The address was dybdcebdcemhbza at goodtraps.com. Random letters in the sender's name strongly suggest spam. And Good Traps? Yeah, could they write spam any bigger than that? Good Traps, by the way, on the day that I received that message, was listed as the 24th most prolific spammer. It is owned by Top Virtual Interactive. Oh, that's the same one I mentioned in the Money Muddle account. And then there was one more spam that I didn't open. The subject was William.Blinn, apostrophe S. We can hasip your Medicaid knows. Overnight, Farrah. It was from Levitar Ivagra. Okay, so it's probably not necessary to say that I'm not too likely to do business with a company that can't spell ship, medications, or even free. It's also probably not necessary to point out that it's unlikely that there is anyone named Levitar Ivagra. Levitar Ivagra's email address was wpoke at nist.gov. I'm sure you know that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, doesn't run a drugstore. Well, enough of spam. This is the week, by the way, that Bill Gates spent his final day as the head of Microsoft. And it got me to thinking about, could I live without Microsoft? Something I think about from time to time. I like the idea of open source software. So far, though, it has not been possible for me to move from Microsoft to open source, although I've made some people attempts. Linux and open-source applications largely have failed to catch on because the people who actually could use them haven't started using them. I've mentioned Ubuntu Linux a time or two, and if any Linux distribution has the ability to break through and become a threat to Microsoft on the desktop, it is that version. Linux can handle word processing, number processing, web browsing, and email. These are the things most commonly used by most people. If these applications are all you need, there is absolutely nothing to stop you from moving to Linux and OpenOffice. I thought it might be interesting to see just how well Linux and the open source community would serve my needs. So I created a matrix that lists the applications I use most often and whether there's an acceptable Linux alternative. The score could be either neutral, zero, in Linux's favor, plus one, or in Windows' favor, plus minus one the bat it's my favorite email program it works only with windows and i could probably get along without it by using evolution on linux so this one comes out a wash zero firefox the mozilla browser is better than microsoft's browser at least in my opinion so the switch wouldn't be a big deal firefox works just fine with linux plus one pigeon what the heck is a pigeon I don't use AIM a lot, but it does help me keep in touch with some people, and I will not use AOL's Instant Messenger. So my preference is Pigeon, and it's available for Linux. Plus one. Dreamweaver. The websites I design are all designed around Dreamweaver's capabilities, and I simply cannot bear to be without that application. There are some open-source HTML editors. None of them capable of doing what Dreamweaver does. Minus one. I'm still largely a novice when it comes to Photoshop, but it is the standard for image processing, and there's really nothing on the Linux side that comes close to matching Photoshop's capabilities. There is a program called the GIMP, and it does many of the same functions, but the interface is so bizarre that I have never been able to figure out exactly how to do most of the things I want to do, at least not yet. There is a new version coming. It is reputed to have a much better interface. So for now, the score, minus one in Windows' favor. InDesign, the only page layout program I use these days, although I still have a lot of affection for Ventura Publisher. In any case, both programs are Windows only. No acceptable alternatives on the Linux side, minus one. FileZilla is my preferred FTP application. Fortunately, it is free and available on Linux, plus one. I use time slips for billing. There's nothing I found on the Linux side to take its place, and I do need to bill for time, so minus one. Thumbs Plus is an application I use every week to perform automated tasks in the preparation of TechBiter Worldwide. Nothing similar exists for Linux users, so that's a minus one. Word. Well, Word has a lot of features that I don't use. OpenOffice Writer also has a lot of features I don't use. I use a word processor primarily for processing words, not for making beautiful publications. Writer is more than adequate for that. Plus one. Excel, well, as with Word, Excel has a lot of features I don't use. So I could probably get along just fine with Calc, even though it doesn't support some of the add-ins that I like when I use Excel. So a plus one. Access is Microsoft's database program. I use it a lot, but I don't use very much of it. I could probably get by with most of what I do in a spreadsheet. OpenOffice does have a front end for MySQL, but that front end still seems just a little weak, so we'll score that a wash, zero. PowerPoint. Uh, OpenOffice has presentation, but presentation doesn't have the features I've come to depend on in PowerPoint. I don't use PowerPoint a lot, but when I do, I want it to be PowerPoint. Minus one. UltraEdit is a text editor without rival on the Windows side. Unfortunately, it is also without a rival on the Linux side. There are lots of open source competitors. Nothing that does what UltraEdit does. Minus one. Carbonite's backup service. The thing that I like most about Carbonite is that it makes backup extremely easy. Linux has lots of tools for backup, but nothing quite this easy. Carbonite might be made workable under Linux, This probably should be a wash, a zero, but for now I'm scoring it as a minus one. CorelDRAW, you can't imagine a graphics application that's easier to use, at least for me, than CorelDRAW is. Of course, I've been using it for 20-some years. It's an application that's available only for Windows, minus one. iTunes and Winamp. iTunes is for Windows and Mac computers only. You might be able to run one or the other, or possibly both, under Wine, under a Linux operating system. My preference is for Winamp, mainly a Windows application, so I'm going to give that a minus one. Then there's Snagit and WinZep, two utilities I simply cannot do without. Some screen capture applications exist for Linux and could replace Snagit, although not with quite the aplomb that Snagit has. And there are, of course, file compression applications on Linux. So overall, that one is a wash, a zero. For me, the bottom line is a minus five. So I really can't consider Linux as a replacement for Windows yet. Now, a lot of people could. Are you one of them? If you'd like to find out, set up a test like that. Don't use my applications. Use the list of applications that you need. Make your own matrix. See if switching might make sense the next time you get a computer. If your list contains Windows-only applications that you must use, you are not a candidate for a Microsoft free existence. But you might be surprised. In Nerdly News, Palm, the maker of the Trio smartphone, posted a loss in its fiscal fourth quarter. Revenue declined sharply and was below Wall Street expectations, so that will make the situation even worse. Now, who uses Palm devices these days? Sony selected Palm as its platform for the Clia devices back in the 1990s, but Sony is no longer in that business. The Palm device I owned most recently stopped recognizing its stylus input, which made it a high-priced paperweight. I paid $175 to have the problem repaired, only to have it recur less than six months later. Palm wanted another $175. I spent that money to buy a Windows-based device palm's fiscal year ended may 31st the company posted a 40 cents per share loss compared to a 15 cents per share profit in the same quarter a year earlier by performing some bookkeeping tricks palm cut the loss to 22 cents per share on paper but that didn't make the picture any less bleak revenue was down 26 percent 296 million a year ago it was above 401 million dollars Wall Street had expected a loss of about 18 cents a share on sales of $301 million. Companies that miss speculators' expectations are punished. You already know that I'm really no fan of the Recording Industry Association of America, The RIAA's greed kept it from negotiating reasonable rights payments with file-sharing services years ago. Instead, the RIAA seems to think that physical media, records, CDs, DVDs, are the only viable way to distribute music. And the organization has been filing suit against anyone who dares to suggest otherwise. In some cases, the RIAA has filed suit against dead people and children. Some courts, though, are beginning to give the RIAA a taste of its own medicine. In 2005, the organization filed a copyright infringement suit against Tanya Anderson. The suit accused her of sharing files illegally on Kazaa. In most cases, the RIAA has picked up $1,000 to $2,000 when the defendant panics, gives up, and pays. Anderson was different. She fought back. A year ago, the case against her was dismissed with prejudice and she was awarded lawyer fees. I have to chuckle about that. So, is the recording industry seeking justice, or is it just a big bully? Electronic media watchdog site After Dawn says that the RIAA spent nearly two years getting through the discovery process in that case. When the investigation was complete, they actually had a weaker case than when they started, and still they claimed the moral high ground, even going so far as to assert that their lack of evidence shouldn't be held against them. In fact, there was evidence to suggest that someone other than Tanya Anderson was responsible for the illegal activity, the site said, but the RIAA's crack legal team didn't bother to follow up on it. As a result, the judge awarded significant damages to Anderson. The RIAA's brand of justice seems to involve bringing somebody into court even if that person isn't involved in what the organization considers to be a crime and essentially shaking them down, intimidating the victim, or the defendant, if you will, into paying even if no guilt can be established. So over the next few weeks, you'll probably hear the RIAA crying about the justice system again. The bottom line seems to be this. When the RIAA comes calling, don't give up. You're probably more right than they are. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBinder Worldwide for the week of June 29, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbinder.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.